Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning one final time to the 51st Psalm where we will be finishing our look together at biblical repentance, looking at verses 13 through 19 this morning. I'll probably read verse 12, but we will focus on 13 through 19. This morning, as I said, we're going to wrap up our look together at this model of biblical repentance that we find here in this classic, very well-known Psalm of David. His prayer here, we have witnessed, is that of a man who has truly been humbled after coming to the realization of the seriousness, the sheer weight, the weightiness of his sins, all of which were committed against the perfect holiness and righteousness of Almighty God. David knows that reconciliation can only come from the merciful and faithful hand of Almighty God. And so it is to that mercy and to that faithfulness that David flies, seeking really much more than just his pardon, much more than just his justification. David is seeking his sanctification and the complete restoration of the joy of his salvation, which had, of course, vanished in the haziness of his sin. I mentioned to you last week that I am sure that we can all certainly understand what David is going through here, being no strangers to sin ourselves. Though we have confidence that through Jesus Christ we have been reconciled to Almighty God through His perfect, gracious, and atoning work of redemption wrought upon the cross on our behalf, though we know it, Though we know that according to the word of God, that nothing can change that glorious truth. We also know what it does to our joy and our peace when we fall into gross error and sin. Our strength is sapped. Our joy is far away as we realize just how wonderful And holy Almighty God truly is. And just how bad we truly are. The realization of the exceeding sinfulness of sin can and indeed does lead one into darkness and despair. And beloved, we certainly see that here with David, don't we? But praise be to God that that is not the end of his story. It's not the end of our story, for that matter, as the particular people of God. Though the realization of our sin can certainly bring about despair, our God, the one who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, our merciful Heavenly Father, though he wounds us with the law, he graciously then turns our eyes through the power of his Spirit towards the healing balm of Jesus Christ. Our eyes are turned away from our sin, away from our offenses, towards the cross of Jesus Christ, where we see the perfect spotless Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice hanging there for us in our place, taking upon himself the full punishment that you and I have most certainly earned and deserved. 
Though we are still smarting from the realization of the depths of our sin, we find that our grief is turned to joy. Our mourning is turned into singing and rejoicing. Our weeping can become laughter when we but glimpse the amazing grace of Almighty God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We see all of these stages of repentance here in this very raw, very real prayer of King David. He goes to God acknowledging that he has fallen far short of the mark that God himself has set forth in his holy law. In fact, he has only accomplished the opposite of the law's demands. He recognizes that though he can hide the desires of his heart, even his outward actions which proceed from that heart from the eyes of men, he can never hide from the all-knowing, all-seeing God of the universe. He can never truly flee the presence of the God who first knew him. David has sinned against God. He has behaved as a godless heathen before God's holy face. And he knows that if the sentence of death were to be carried out against him that very day, that he would only have been given exactly what he had earned. But David flies to the mercy of God anyway. And he remembers the promises of Almighty God and he finds much needed hope. He finds very real rest, not in the strength of his own flawed character. But David finds real rest in the flawless character, the covenantal faithfulness of Almighty God himself. We have witnessed the pleas of David before the throne of grace. David asked that he would be purged that he would be washed, that his heart would once again be restored to joy and gladness. He asked that he would be made new, that he would be recreated with a new heart, that he would have a steadfast spirit within him. David knows and recognizes the need not only to be justified by the grace of God, but to be sanctified and preserved by the generous spirit of Almighty God himself. And he asks to have restored to him the joy of his salvation. The joy that comes when one recognizes that despite what he knows himself to be, that God has condescended to sinful man, that God takes the reins of our lives, that he reconciles us to himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we are going to be looking at the closing of this wonderful prayer and we're going going to be looking specifically at what effects or what the the effects of true biblical, biblical repentance are for the one who trusts in the promise of Almighty God. And it's my desire this morning to point out to you here in the text, I think four results that are the effects of true repentance being granted not only just to King David, but in fact to all of those who because of Jesus Christ belong to God. So I'd like you to follow along as I read from the infallible, inerrant, and holy word of God, Psalm 51. I'll pick up with verse 12, though again our focus is going to be 13 through 19 this morning. Hear now the word of our Lord. David crying out to God says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. 
Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls upon your altar. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning to be able to come before your word, and we pray that your spirit would fill us. I pray, Father, that I would handle your word through the guidance of your spirit correctly, accurately, in a way that speaks to your glory and your glory alone. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to these truths through the power of your spirit that we might be transformed more and more for your glory and your glory alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've already mentioned this morning the pleas that David has made thus far in this prayer, and I'll not go through each of them again. But it is important that we look at verse 13 and we recognize a word there, that word then. It implies that whatever is going to follow the word then will be the direct result of what preceded that word, which we have been looking at together over the last few weeks. If I tell my children to clean up the kitchen after dinner and then I will let them have dessert, they know in order to have dessert, they must first clean the kitchen. David has been pleading with God here to be purged from within, to be recreated, to be remade, to receive a new heart, and to have the joy of his salvation restored to him. And the effects of those petitions being granted by the merciful hand of Almighty God are what follows then in verse 13. And the first effect that David says that if these things are given to him, then he will teach transgressors the ways of God. David says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Now, let's first be clear about what David is certainly not doing here. David is not developing some sort of prosperity type of doctrine here. In other words, he is in no way implying that he now has God in a kind of box where if he does A, then the hand of God will be forced to do B. He is not here offering to God some sort of backroom deal. He is not saying, God, if you do this, then I'll open my mouth to tell other people about what you can do. But if you choose not to, then you will get no help from me. No, nothing could be farther from David's intention here. David is touching upon the motivation for all transgressors in this life, for all sinners to turn away from their sin and pursue anything akin to obedience. And beloved, that motivation is gratitude. 
thankfulness. We've talked about it many times before. It's that third section of the Heidelberg Catechism that we as a body of believers confess. Our motivation in telling others about the grace of God given to this world through the person and work of Jesus Christ is never simply our carrying out our duty. You understand? We do not evangelize, if you will, because as card-carrying members of the Christian church, it's in our constitution that if God will let us into his group, then we will be expected to tell everyone within earshot the message of our group or we will not remain members of the group. That's not what motivates the people of God in evangelism according to the word of God, though I am sure that there are some who would say that that is a proper motivation. I would disagree. But as a body, we say that the motivation to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ is never simply just our constitutional duty. It's not something we do where we just go through the motions. Because after all, it's expected of us. Beloved, I hope you see where this is going. Our salvation is far greater than that. Do you understand? We do not teach others the gracious ways of our merciful Heavenly Father because we have to or else. Beloved, we tell others about Jesus Christ because we, of all people, are grateful for what he has done for us. We, of all people, like David, have been allowed to peek at the monstrous nature of our own sin. And by the grace of God, we have been horrified at what we see there. And having our eyes then turned to Jesus Christ and his cross as sinners... We know that really we do have much to be grateful for. The love of God for his people that is so evident in our salvation should compel the people of God to actively love him and one another. We who have had our sin made known to us should upon that recognition be moved towards compassion for those around us. Our desire should never be to move up one more step, one more rung on the evangelical ladder of good standing. But as confessed transgressors, moved by love and gratitude, we seek to tell others what the wonderful love of God has done for sinners like us. And we point them to Jesus as the absolute embodiment of that love. I was blind, and now I see, and I can't stop talking about it. And when we do, David makes the very astute observation here that when God has shed his mercy upon his people, compelling them towards mercy towards others, what is the end of it? Sinners, fellow transgressors, according to David, shall be converted to God. Sinners will find their hope in God's mercy. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you hear the word of God this morning? David makes the connection here that due to God's mercy towards him, 
and his subsequent humility, which leads him towards mercy towards others, even an acknowledged and known transgressor like David, becomes the very means of bringing others to Almighty God and his wonderful salvation in the gospel. Cracked pots shine the glorious light of the gospel through their flaws. Do you believe that? I want you to understand it's not a program. It's not eloquence. It's not having the most distinguished degree on the wall that will bring others to Christ. Sinners are converted when sinners cannot stop the words of gratitude for the gospel from flowing out of their thankful mouths as they speak of the amazing grace of Almighty God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Those who are forgiven much love much. And so we cannot help but to speak of the glories of God's grace so manifested in the gospel which through the power of the Spirit reconciles man to his creator through the perfectly righteous person and work of Jesus Christ. Not because of their faithfulness. Never because of all of their hard work. But despite what they are at their very best, sinners standing desperately in need of God's grace and mercy. Almighty God extends his mercy to us through the gospel. He gives us eternal life in and through Jesus Christ. Do you want to understand the motivation that should and in fact will lead you to tell others of the hope that is yours in Jesus Christ? Then look at yourself, not through the eyes of other people, whom you can and perhaps even do fool on a regular basis. But look at yourself in the eyes of the holy law of God. Glimpse the offense that your sin is to the holiness of God. And see that the truth is, apart from Christ, you are barren of any righteousness at all. And yet know that because of Jesus Christ imputing his perfect righteousness to you, you are reckoned as perfectly righteous in the eyes of God. It is truly as if you had never committed nor had any sin. It is as if you yourself had wrought the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. That's what we confess. This is the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the reason we tell others. This is the reason why we sing of the glories of the gospel from the very rooftops of our houses, from the place that God has called us to live and breathe and have our being. We're not motivated just by duty, but by true, real gratefulness. And David makes that clear here. Teaching others the way of God, the ways of God is the effect of a heart that has been transformed by his wonderful, redeeming grace. That is the first effect of true repentance. The second effect of true repentance that David mentions in this prayer is that he will be delivered from his guilt. 
David had acknowledged that his he had acknowledged that his sin with Bathsheba sexually, which led to the murder of her husband, the loyal servant of David, Uriah the Hittite, all in a vain effort to cover up his own sin. It was a sin against God Himself. We talked about it. David had blood on his hands, and his sin warranted his execution. And I want to be clear, there are not enough bulls and goats alive to make David free of his blood guilt. Only the mercy of God could ever bring about his pardon. That's why we see David here flying to the mercy of God in the first place. David sinned against the holiness of God and his sins go back much, much farther than just Bathsheba. Much farther than the day that he ogled her from the rooftop. In fact, it went all the way back to the time of his conception when David says he inherited the same sin nature of his father Adam. The same sin nature that we have in our own flesh. And only Almighty God could ever deliver him of that kind of guilt. But David knows that his God is a God who stays faithful to his promise. His God is a God who had promised that the Messiah, the true King of Israel, the one whom David and Saul before him, and all of those who would come after them, were but mere dim shadows of. The one and only true King of Kings one day would come and ascend his throne to rule for all eternity. And David found hope in that promise. And he has believed God. He has taken God at his word and despite the guilt that he knew belonged entirely to him and him alone, David finds real hope in the promise of the one to come. The one who would save his people from their sins. The one who would save them from their blood guilt. Jesus Christ, the righteous. David asks for deliverance from this guilt and he asks it with complete confidence in the God of his salvation. Beloved, I want to ask you this morning, do you know that confidence in light of your own sin? The second effect of being purged by the blood of Jesus Christ is the knowledge that even though we are guilty, even though we have earned our guilt, even though we have offended all of the holy law of God, we have the confidence that our guilt is entirely removed in Jesus Christ. Though we have blood on our hands and on our clothing, the blood of Jesus Christ covers every single one of our iniquities and makes us clean on the inside where God desires for us to be clean. And it leads to the third effect of being granted true repentance. We see it here in this song. The third effect is that it will lead us into true worship. David says, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Even David's worship is entirely dependent upon the mercies of his God. 
when we have been washed in the blood of the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, we will worship God. Do you see that here? True worship is not brought about out of our sense of just rote duty. God does not need for you to come and force songs of praise from ungrateful lips. You will never truly worship God out of some sense of fulfilling your least duty. But the heart that has been recreated, the guilty soul that has been purged and washed by the blood of Christ, the one who has been restored to joy and who rejoices in his salvation from his mouth will pour forth true worship. Do you really believe that Almighty God wants your worship even when you are not bearing in your body the marks of true repentance? Do you think that God is glorified when people sing his praises, period? regardless of their hearts having never been transformed by his gracious spirit, powerfully applying his glorious gospel. Does God need for the pagans to worship him, to acknowledge him, to feign thankfulness, even though they do not trust Jesus Christ by faith alone for salvation? You know, Jesus responded to the Pharisees when they questioned him through their clenched teeth about how he could just sit back while his disciples blasphemed the name of God by praising him and calling out after him as he rode into Jerusalem to purchase our salvation. They were indignant as the followers of Jesus Christ couldn't stop themselves from crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Do you remember how Jesus answered those Pharisees? He said, I tell you that if these should keep silent, even the stones would immediately cry out. These objects of the grace of God need no prodding. They do not need commandments to worship Almighty God. They need hearts that are overflowing with the effects of receiving His grace through the power of His Spirit. They will always cry out to their Creator in praise. Do you have that kind of heart this morning? Why does your mouth Sing the praises of Almighty God this morning. Because you should. Because it's what you do on Sundays. You come here, you give up an hour of your week. Yes, you even flex the golden pipes a little bit. Let everyone know around you that you too will sing God's praises on this particular day. That you too will show the world and the church that you are willing to sacrifice something for God. Is that why we do it? Is that why you do it? David makes something about true worship here very clear. And the people of God would do very well to clear their minds and to hear the word of God on this matter. God does not want, he does not desire, David's words, your sacrifice. Do you hear that? 
He does not want your sacrifice. He does not need it. David says, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. That verse ought to perk up the ears of everyone here who thinks that he or she desires the law. Your flesh always desires a rule. David said, look, if I could just do something, if I could just give you something in order to satisfy you, then I would most certainly give it. This is the the flesh and its inclination to just do something. If only there was a rule, I could keep it. If only my righteousness could come through my effort, then at least I could know that I'm okay. But to trust in something entirely external to myself, that's to take the control entirely out of my hands and place it in a God who reveals himself as entirely sovereign and merciful. To trust that Christ kept the law perfectly for me and even suffered the penalty of my law-breaking ways, that's something that's entirely outside of my control. Give me a law and I will keep it. David makes clear for us not only what God does not desire, our sacrifice. But he tells us in this wonderful prayer what God does indeed desire. He says, you do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do you get it? God does not want your sacrifice. He's not out there combing the deserts trying to find those who are able to really serve him well, those who possess the skills that he needs, all of the serious ones out there. No, he desires not your so-called righteous deeds. Rather, it's your broken heart he wants. Your heart that knows by the grace of God exactly what you are apart from his grace. A broken sinner, utterly completely reliant upon the grace and mercy of Almighty God. A sinner even at your best. One who will never sing from a heart filled with spirit and truth. One who will never worship ever, no matter what your life looks like to me or others, unless the amazing grace of Almighty God gives to you a new heart. One that can and does look to Jesus Christ and to Him alone and clings to him by faith. One whose heart worships because it is filled with spirit-fueled gratitude to Almighty God for the joy of salvation. When Jesus came to this world, he did not spend his time here praising the externally righteous. There was not a group of people more externally righteous than the Pharisees. However, they themselves received the vehement rebukes of our Savior while the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and the scourges of society received his compassion and his life-giving truth. I love that scene that Luke describes for us in chapter 18 of his gospel account of the Pharisee and the tax collector going to the temple. You're probably familiar with it. The Pharisee stood proud and erect, happy to have the eyes of men on him and his white robes. He was a picture of ceremonial cleanliness. 
He was happy to make eye contact with anyone and everyone who would be so fortunate as to even gaze his way. While the tax collector made his way to the temple, unable to even look up from the ground. A picture of guilt and remorse. Once in the temple, the Pharisee stands even more erect and he begins to sing his own praises to the Lord. He thanks God that he's not like this tax collector or any of these other extortioners, these unjust people, these adulterers, this scum of the earth which pollute the very earth, the very air that he is being forced to breathe. No, he actually tithes on everything he possesses and he fasts not once but twice a week. While this pompous self-righteous fool waxes eloquent, about the good fortune of Almighty God to have a servant the likes of him. The tax collector stood away, we are told, from the attention of the temple goers, and not even daring to look towards heaven, he pounded his chest and begged God to have mercy on him, a sinner. And he left the temple forgiven. While the Pharisee bombastically continued just to heap more and more condemnation upon his own head. Beloved, I ask you again why do you sing? Whose praises are truly on your heart this beautiful Lord's Day? Beloved, only you and your God really know the answer to that question, and it's a question that I trust is worth all of our attention this morning. Finally, the fourth final effect here of true repentance is the building up of Christ's church here on earth. David closes his prayer by asking that God would do his good pleasure in Zion, that he would build the walls around Jerusalem, his people. This we know that David certainly desired. It was his heart's desire to build a temple of the Lord there in Jerusalem, But there's even more significance than just that. David prays that God would so build his church through converted transgressors like him that his church would thrive and they would live out his perfect will for his people. He prays that God would build his church through repentance and that repentance, that that repentance would build upon his glory here on the earth. David seeks for the church to be filled with people who live as though they really are transformed. Not as if they just like the way it appears to men. And when God, by his grace, does these things, there's that word again, then. Then David says, you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then they will offer bulls on your altar. Beloved, the true church of Jesus Christ really ought to be the happiest place on this entire fallen planet. And we know that's not often the case, is it? Why? Well, because at least one reason is because not all Israel is truly Israel. Not all of those who say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name, truly belong to Jesus Christ. In fact, not all of what is visibly the church is actually the church. There are in the midst of the wheat, weeds. There are both good fish and bad fish, and we believe there will be 
Until that day when Jesus Christ comes again with his reaping angels and he gathers the true harvest into the barns of God and he sends the rest into the fires of hell for all eternity. But that does not mean that you and I are without assurance of where it is that we stand. You see, the truly repentant know these things that David is bringing up here. They know the effects of faith of a heart that has been recreated clean, made capable of embracing Jesus Christ by faith. They know what it means to joyfully proclaim the good news to any and all who will listen. There is no group that the repentant feel is somehow outside of the parameters of God's grace. We are all sinners who need Jesus. And we do well not to think that there are sinners out there who do not deserve his mercy. Beloved, we do not deserve his mercy, which is why it's called grace. We get what we do not deserve. Truly repentant people worship God for the right reasons and waste no time trying to get the attention of everyone else because they worship because it is their joy to worship. Truly repentant people like David desire to see the church of God being built up and edified for his glory and for no other reason. You see, truly repentant people spend their time thanking God for Jesus Christ and his work and very little time celebrating their own goodness or denouncing the lack of goodness in others. Transgressors who have been given grace sympathize with other transgressors because they know what transgression is by the grace of God. So as we close this morning, let me leave this psalm with one warning for you to keep at the front of your minds as you consider your own repentance this morning. The measure of your repentance is found in the gratitude that you know, realizing that you yourself, the one in the mirror, are the biggest sinner that you could ever know. And even though you are what you are, Jesus Christ came, died, was resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory for you. If your unit of measurement consists of anything else this morning, your own goodness, works, your own superiority to those around you, those who are far less spiritual than you are, those who have done far less for the church than you have, then my advice would be to take a closer look at the scoundrel in the mirror. Because until that one recognizes his or her need for Jesus Christ and his righteousness, I want to tell you, repentance is far, far away. And it will stay away until you recognize that you are the one who needs to be broken that it's your heart that needs to be contrite will you come to Jesus Christ and trust in him by faith alone beloved if you will then I trust your voice will be one raised from the heart this morning as we leave this place with the true praises of almighty God in our hearts and upon our lips. Amen.